the next several weeks, the next uh, 10 or 11 weeks, I believe, we are focusing on the theme of worship. What does it mean to receive the life of God, the life of Jesus Christ, in and, and through our worship as a people? Next week, I've asked Christian Cordemanche to speak on this topic, and I'm excited to hear what he is preparing in that area. But today, as we set off in, in this particular pursuit, I've chosen Psalm 84 because I think it, it sketches sort of a, a picture of what a life, a whole life of worship looks like. And it's, it's a journeying psalm. You'll see as we open it up this morning that there, there are parts to it. it. It describes a process and movement of a worshiper. So I'd encourage you to open to Psalm 84 as we get underway today. As we're thinking about worship, one of the questions I'd like you to, to think about this morning is where are the beautiful places in your life? Are there places of particular beauty to you? On his newest album, singer and songwriter Andrew Osenga has a track with that title, Beautiful Places. And he sings that beautiful places are where you go when you need to remember what truth and freedom and grace is. For many of us, there's some corner, some particular place in God's creation that we long to go to. Maybe you have a family cabin, a lake house. Maybe it was a young life camp. Maybe it's a woods that you've hunted in for generations with your family. If you're more cosmopolitan, it might be a favorite restaurant or a cafe or a cityscape somewhere. But the the sheer memory of those places cues up within you a kind of wistful longing Nostalgia, right? To to somehow get closer to that, to to go back to that space. Several years ago, a good friend of mine who was a teacher used to plan a month-long family trip to the beaches of Thailand at the end of every school year. They would spend July in Thailand. They were living in East Asia at the time. And it was the absolute highlight of his entire year. And one day, it was probably February, we were, we were having coffee, and he was talking about the, the trip that they had planned, and he turned his phone around, and he showed me a widget on the home screen of his phone, and it was a countdown with days and hours and minutes, and it was tracking, you know, the moment that they would get to leave on that plane for Thailand. And so when he was having a challenging day in the classroom, or frustrated with life in the big city, right? he would envision those crystal blue waters and mango smoothies and incredible Thai food. And there would be something that, that would sort of pull him through with that kind of longing. Now we might be tempted to dismiss that kind of thing as, as romanticism, or, or maybe even worse, a kind of escapism. But I think they actually speak to something deeper within us, right? These longings we have for beautiful things and beautiful places. 
I think that longing is actually closely connected with worship itself. And while at times we confuse the created with the creator in our worship, there is, I think, kind of a universal recognition of glory in those experiences, of something profound, of something beautiful, of something significant and weighty. And that even if it's fleeting, right, it, it, it stirs something within us. I think those places and those experiences remind us that we are worshipers. We're created to worship something. This morning, as we begin this series on the subject of worship, I want to consider Psalm 84 because it is devoted to one of these beautiful places. I want us to consider what it has to say about what a a life lived in pursuit of that beauty, of that glory, of, of true worship, what that kind of life looks like. So if you would open with me to Psalm 84, let me pray for us as we study the word of God together. Lord, we are privileged to be in your presence this morning, in the house, in the courts of the Lord, because you are full of beauty, you are full of goodness, you are perfect in every way, and Lord, it's, it's you that our hearts long for, whether we have fully recognized it or not. Lord, I pray as we hear the psalm of praise and worship, Lord, may the words of my mouth as I teach, may the meditations of all of our hearts point us toward you. May they be pleasing to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 84, let me read for you the first four verses. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, the altar of the Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. first section of this song indicates it expresses longing. If you've ever been in a long-distance relationship or maybe had a strong case of homesickness, then you'll recognize the kind of emotional profile of these first four verses. Right? They communicate what, what is sort of both a wonderful and a terrible feeling of, of wanting something that feels far off, far away hard to get to. According to the inscription here before Psalm 84, 
This is a love-stricken song written by the sons of Korah. And it's written about a place that they could not wait to get back to every year. In this case, the object of their longing, the object of their affection is the house of the Lord. And if we dig around in the Old Testament a little bit, there's not, there's not a lot of references to this group, the sons of Korah, but what we do find is that they were a division of Levites, a particular family within that, that grouping, who served as gatekeepers at the temple. That was one of their specific jobs. And they also were known for composing music and song that was used at the temple. But the, the way the priestly service worked was that, you know, you, the priests lived throughout Israel. And then every year for a few weeks, their order, their division would be called up for service. And then they would be asked to go back to their villages, right? They, they just had this, this one time or a few times in a year that they came up to the temple. But even as they returned home, Psalm 84 tells us that that the temple remained with them, right? It remained in their imagination. It remained in their dreams. It was, it was a place that their souls were always longing to travel back to and to be in. Look at verse 2. It says, My soul yearns. My soul even faints for the courts of the Lord. There's, there's desperation in his voice. And the longing is not just to be in the building or in the place itself, but it's a longing, the psalmist says, to be with the one who lives there. As that verse continues, my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God, for his presence. And what is abundantly clear from these first four verses is that desire has an awful lot to do with worship. Now there is a certain kind of, of, of concern, maybe a, a kind of temptation in Western culture to, to think of worship almost entirely in terms of ideas, in terms of, of things I believe about God. And, and those things, of course, matter. They form our picture and our image of who God is. But the scriptures, and in particular the book of Psalms, require that, that we have a heart and a body, and a mind, and a soul that are all working in concert, all working together in order to make worship happen. We experience worship as as a full person. And so in the Psalms, that means that worshipers sometimes are subject to bouts of, of hunger and longing and desire for more of God, even a kind of jealousy of sorts. The, the psalmist here says, man, how lucky is that sparrow who gets to live in your house every day next to your altar? They communicate that life and worship is, is fundament, fundamentally about a, a growth of desire within us. And if that sounds strange to us, well, maybe we need to revisit what we do in worship, how we think about worship, what we think church is all about. 
This, uh, this fall semester, one of the adult Sunday school classes is going through a book by James K.A. Smith where he argues you are what you love, you are what you worship. And in another one of his books prior to this, Jamie Smith argues that the primary purpose of worship is to increase one's desire, not just for anything, but in particular our desire for God himself. Worship is about increasing our desire for God. And he says this is because whatever we desire, whatever we aim our worship at, shapes how we see and understand our world. Right, Which is where this title of this book comes in. You are what you love. You become like what you worship. And he envisions our hearts as a kind of compass. Our worship, our desire, point us toward something. Our future, what, what we will become, what we will give our lives to. So let me challenge you as we think about what a life of worship looks like. Let me ask you, do you have space in your worship? Do you have a posture in your worship, in in the regular rhythms of, of who you are and what you do, where you experience the goodness of God, where you taste of who he is, of his profound beauty? Do you have space in your life to, to enter into adoration and, and just the enjoyment, that longing for the greatness of God? To allow your imagination to, to wander and, and, and to be sort of captivated with, with who God is. This psalm is broken into into three parts, and in each part there is a beatitude. There is a blessing that's communicated. Here in verse 4, we're told what happens to those who long for, who desire for God, who can't wait to be in his household. The psalmist says they are blessed with the pleasure of praise. With a a joyful sense of gratitude that that changes how they see the world. It changes how they see everything else. As we grow in desire, God gives us the gift of praise. The pleasure of praise. And so, while worship must include our desire, we have to to know who it is and and long for the the presence and, and the person of God. The psalmist doesn't say it stops there. But a life of worship also requires the discipline and the willingness to start walking in our worship. Look at verses 5 through 8. Here's another blessing. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. So if the the first four verses express a longing to be in God's presence, that, that sense that we are far away and longing to be close, These next four verses offer a a concrete action that follows our desire. And it's the act of setting out to be where God is. Our life of worship has to include a 
kind of journey, a kind of pilgrimage, a walking toward and a walking with God. The Hebrew at the end of verse 5 describes this this process as literally a, a highway of the heart. It's our heart moving along a pathway, along a road back to Zion. And so in in contrast to our desires, which are central and significant and important, but desire, as you know, waxes and wanes. But a pilgrimage translates that desire into a sustained practice. Pilgrims walk in one direction for days, sometimes for weeks, both when they feel like it But they keep walking even when they don't. Might ask you, well, what has your walking with the Lord been like? Since you set out to follow Jesus Christ, what what has that journey included? And my guess is that there have been a few false starts, there have been some detours, there have been some obstacles that you didn't anticipate at the beginning of that journey. And it doesn't take too long for, for most of us than that, that wistful hoping and longing to be confronted by the reality of, of what's right in front of us today. And sometimes that current reality is something like the Valley of Baca described here in verse 6. Now, Baca is a Hebrew word that the translators of these passages argue over. Because no one's 100% sure what it refers to. Could have been an actual valley, an actual place. But the word itself closely resembles a couple of Hebrew words. One is the word for a balsam tree, which would grow in a dry and arid valley. The second word Baha resembles is the Hebrew word for weeping. And so either way, we get the sense that to walk through the valley of Baca is not a particularly lush or or easy experience. It's not a a particularly desirable place to be. But verses 6 and 7 explain that something remarkable happens as we walk through that place in worship and in the presence of God. There's a transformation that occurs. Back Several years before I met my wife, Katie, she was a teacher in an international school, and she shared her classroom with a woman named Aisha. Aisha was an incredible artist, and as they worked together, they became good friends. And Aisha noticed that Katie often had the practice of bringing her Bible with her to work. She would read from it throughout the day. And at some point, she asked Katie to share something from this book with her. And on one of those days, Katie opened up to Psalm 84, and she explained that that one of the reasons this book was meaningful to her was it expressed how beautiful her God is, and how he's with us even in the hardest and darkest and driest seasons of our life, but that as we walk with him, right, even the tears we shed in those dry valleys, those times of weeping, that God uses to, to create pools and springs that refresh us and sustain us. Sometime after that conversation, as Aisha was herself beginning 
her own journey of walking with the Lord, she produced a gift for Katie. And it was a scroll with the words of Psalm 84 beautifully scripted out in Aisha's own calligraphy. And since that time, that scroll has found its way onto the wall of every home, every place that Katie and I have journeyed together with the Lord as a reminder of of who it is that walks with us and before us. So the the blessing here, for those who who desire the Lord, for those who commit to, to walking toward him and with him, even in difficult things, we're told that they are blessed with strength. Difficult seasons come, but God's children will will move from strength to strength. They will go from one hill to the next until finally, the psalm says, they appear before the Lord at the temple, at his dwelling place in Zion. That is where we arrive in verses 9 through 12. He says, look on our shield, meaning our king, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. So again, we've we've had this journey. We have the, the sons of Korah who are far away in their village somewhere longing to come back, longing for the presence of God. And then in the middle section, we have them journeying toward Jerusalem, walking through those difficult valleys. And now in these final four verses, we get to see the joy of a worshiper who finally makes it. They've longed for this day. They've walked through the valleys to get there. And now there is this momentous sense of arrival that takes place. And as they step into the city of Jerusalem, there's a prayer offered in verse 9 for the king who reigns there, who reigns over his people. But then in in verse 10, our worshiper moves quickly toward the true destination of this pilgrimage. They step up to the threshold of God's own house. And in verse 10, he says, If given a choice, I'd rather spend a day here, just at the doorpost, just looking in, A day here at the house of my Lord than a lifetime far from God. I'd rather stand in the doorway of God's house just to be this close to God than to have unrestricted access to the tents of the wicked. There's this sense, right, that that a pilgrim or a priest who could only spend maybe a few days, a week, at the house of the Lord before returning home they experience a kind of connection and intimacy with God there that makes that place a a true and lasting home for them, even as they're far away. Verse 11 says, God offers to be our sun 
and our shield, our, our light, our glory, and our protection. And that he invites his worshipers to know his favor and his grace, his honor and his glory. And as we come to where he is, he, he wants us to rest in the contentment and the security that come just from being near to him, even from being in his doorway. There's, there's a sense of, of rest in the conclusion to this psalm. One Sunday afternoon, shortly after we moved here to Jericho, we were renting a farmhouse a couple miles from here. And I went in on the af- that afternoon to, to check on our kids, who I assumed were napping in their beds, and I found the beds empty, and I found their pillows missing. And I scratched my head, and I walked around the house, not finding them anywhere inside. I walked out into the yard, and I discovered two of them laying on a blanket in a sunny spot out on the grass, kind of tucked between a couple trees. And I said, what are you guys doing out here? And the answer that came back was, basking. (laughs) We're basking, Dad. This is our basking spot. They were soaking up the sun. Why stay inside when you could lay in the grass in the sunshine? A worshiper must long for God. A worshiper must journey with him and toward him through all sorts of challenges. But a worshiper must also regularly take time to bask. Right? To let our whole person, our, our body, our mind, our soul, our spirit, find rest in him. And that, that deeply simple kind of blessing and happiness is what I, I hear described in verse 12, the, the final beatitude of this psalm. Right? Basking in, in the radiant presence, the nearness of God to him, the psalmist says, Lord God Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. That idea of trust communicates stability and resolution and and rest. Blessed is the one who is contented, who is satisfied with your kindness, your favor. So I'd like to think this psalm offers us a kind of of perspective on what a a daily life, a a weekly, perhaps, rhythm of worship looks like for us. We have to have times where we have our imaginations captured by just how powerful and beautiful and good God is. We have to have that that willingness to walk through and, and to be disciplined in our worship, close to God in the trials we also have to regularly take time just to rest, just to be in the presence of God, nothing else. But I also think it, it offers a kind of sketch of where we're headed this fall. In a few weeks, we'll be considering how it is that we're made to worship God with all of who we are, with our minds, with our emotions, with our souls, with our spirits, so that our desire for him can grow. Right? We can't compartmentalize our worship. We'll be thinking about how, how to, to break up new ground. We'll also consider, though, how our worship grows through perseverance. And so our, our study of worship will include how, how we move through seasons of surrender or lament 
or lost, how these are even necessary parts of pilgrimage and worship and moving toward God. And finally, this fall, we'll finish with ideas about how we incorporate worship into the the rhythms of our everyday life to ensure that we're regularly coming near to, right, arriving in, basking even in the presence of our God. Let me pray for us as we endeavor to do that together. Lord, your worship is a gift to us. It is where we find life. Lord, would you dispel all idols that would distract us? And would you make large our vision, our ability to see and know who you are? Jesus, would you be magnified in us and in our worship today? In your name we pray. Amen.